0: Hello, everyone! Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 86, Old Enemies, New Friends. Last time, we began the newest war between the Persian Empire and the ambitious cities of Greece. In this case, the fallout of the War of the Brothers blew across the Aegean to Sparta, still formally at war with Artaxerxes II from their alliance with Cyrus the Younger. They sent the general Thibron to support the rebels of the Ionian coast. Meanwhile, their admiral in Byzantium hired the 8,000 or so remaining mercenaries from Cyrus the Younger's army, received bribes from the satrap Pharnabazus II of Phrygia, and fired the mercenaries. Xenophon and the mercenaries spent the last few months of 400 BC in service to Suthes of Southern Thrace before being hired by Thibron. The mercenaries campaigned with him and on his behalf in Iolus, the northwestern coast of Anatolia, until late winter of 398. At that point, Thibron's replacement as Sparta's eastern commander was on the way, with plans of a campaign through Lydia down to Caria. They broke off a siege at Larissa without taking the city and headed south, facing little to no resistance from Tissaphernes' garrisons, who would still have been dispersed in small pockets for their winter quarters. Thibron's replacement was Derchilidas who had earned a reputation for resourcefulness and stubbornness during the alliance with Persia back in the 410s, so much so that the Spartans took to calling him Sisyphus. Thibron's command had prolonged this newest Ionian revolt, the fourth by my count, and permitted some already rebellious cities in Phrygia to join in, but it did little to expand the war, or force Artaxerxes and the satraps to the negotiating table. Derkylidas was chosen to expand the conflict, but also because he disliked Tissaphernes and Pharnabazus, especially the latter, stemming from their intractable behavior a decade earlier. If you want something done right, send in a personal grudge match. Durkhalidas arrived in Ephesus with more troops from Sparta and marched up north to meet and take command of Thibron's forces. He traveled through mostly friendly rebel Ionian territory before rendezvousing with the existing Spartan army. With a larger force, he returned to Larissa and offered amnesty to the Greek garrison there if they surrendered. Not only did they surrender but two of the neighboring cities sent offers the same day, with three more coming soon after. If you cast your memory back to episode 83, many of these cities were guarded by mercenary garrisons installed by the female governor Mania and had been treated to lapsed pay, derogatory remarks, and general condescension by the new local governor, Medius, ever since he assassinated his predecessor. With amnesty and payment in service to Sparta on the table, switching sides was an easy call. Medius had proven himself so unpopular in the months since he became governor that Derkylidos didn't even attempt to besiege his capital, the Greek city of Gergis. He simply marched up to the gates and demanded to be let in. The Greek mercenaries inside obliged. They joined the Spartan army and they all occupied Gerges together, captured Madius, and looted only his mansion and the mansion that once belonged to Mania. The Greek inhabitants were left secure and happy, and the Spartans took enough loot from the mansions to pay the army for a full year. With so much success in Pharnabazus' territory, Durkilidas decided to change plans. Rather than going south to battle Tissaphernes, he went north to Bithynia and raided Persian territory there. As winter approached, he sent an embassy to Pharnabazus, offering an armistice. And Pharnabazus was forced to agree. With the Spartan army to his east and rebellion to his west, his personal seat in Descalaeon was just too vulnerable. It was not a full halt to the war between Sparta and Persia, but an agreement to leave things as they stood in the Phrygian satrapy, with Aeolus in Spartan hands, free of interference from Pharnabazus. The next spring the Spartans sailed over to Lempascus, where Derkylidas received word that his command in the east would be extended for another year. The whole army was briefly distracted by additional orders from Sparta to cross over to the European side of the Hellespont and stop Thracian raiding against Spartan colonies in the Chersonese. But negotiations with King Suthes put an end to that peacefully, so they just returned to Aeolus to inspect the Greek cities in rebellion. You have to figure that the fact that 8,000 of the Spartan troops were Suthes' former comrades-in-arms had something to do with that. Aside from one town that had become a base for pirates, Durkhalidas was pleased and contented to march south, resuming his original plans for an invasion of Caria where Tissaphernes personally owned large tracts of land and estates. On the Persian end of things, Artaxerxes II was apparently frustrated by Pharnabazus' willingness to cooperate with the enemy, because he declared Tissaphernes would take overall command in Anatolia. Pharnabazus had sat quietly to watch the civil war play out, while Tissaphernes repeatedly warned the king of Cyrus' intentions. The favored satrap was obvious. Pharnabazus had to end his truce with Sparta and bring forces south to join up with Tissaphernes' men. Rather than facing the Spartans in open battle on the road, the two satraps installed large garrisons on the border fortresses between Caria and Ionia, then kept the bulk of their force further north with plans to invade once Dyrkilidas was distracted in the south. But they moved too quickly, and the Spartans called off the invasion to defend their existing gains. They faced off for a pitched battle near the Meander River, but Tissaphernes was hesitant to engage with the Spartans. Pharnabazus was less concerned. The Persians had the advantage of numbers and cavalry. But to his credit, Tissaphernes knew his enemy much better. He knew that Cyrus's mercenaries comprised the bulk of the enemy force, and he had fought those men repeatedly as they fled through Assyria with little success. Instead, he wanted to negotiate. The two armies exchanged officers as hostages, and the Persians withdrew to fight another day. In the last episode, I discussed the ongoing rivalry between the Spartan kings Pausanias and Augis II, as they tried to undermine one another. That rivalry even infiltrates our sources, with Diodorus claiming that Pausanias led a campaign against one of Sparta's neighbors in Greece in 401, and Xenophon saying it was Agis in 398 typically i'd favor Xenophon as the contemporary but he had lots of reasons to support the Eurypontid side of the argument setting the actual commander aside i will trust Xenophon for the date which agrees with more sources for the events that followed Agis fell ill and died in 398 either returning from the campaign or simply sitting around at home in Sparta. With his own son's legitimacy in doubt, the succession was disputed. Crucially, Lysander, the former admiral who befriended Cyrus the Younger, and King Posanius both backed Agis's younger brother, Agesilus, pushing the presumed heir out of the picture. Shortly after becoming the Europontid king, Agesilus II, he was swamped with problems at home and abroad. Unrest among citizens who no longer met the land requirements for full citizenship caused problems at home. While news of the armistice with Tissaphernes should have eased tensions abroad, but within two months the war resumed. With a deep and justifiable dislike of the Lydian satrap, Xenophon blames the breach on Tissaphernes, but it's just as likely that Artaxerxes refused to abide by it. We've already seen how he overruled Barnabasus' attempt at an armistice in his territory, and reinforcements from other provinces were continuously sent to support the satraps in Anatolia. News of this reached Agesilaus and the Spartans back home, not from Derkylidas, but from one of their agents in Phoenicia, who reported that fully stocked warships were being prepared in the Levant. This immediately raised concerns of a renewed war at land and sea, or even an invasion of Greece itself. Lysander was the first to raise the idea of a full-blown offensive, Still armed with the fleet that the Achaemenids had provided them during the Ionian War, he argued that Sparta would be superior at sea, and if the mercenaries were able to return all the way from Babylonia, the Persian army could not possibly be the threat it once was. He beseeched Agesilaus to take command in the field. Agesilaus agreed and the Spartan ephors authorized him to take 30 Spartan officers and an army of 8,000 additional troops gathered from their allies in the Peloponnesian League, and emancipated Helots as Peltasts. Durkilidas remained in command for another, mostly uneventful year, as Aegisilus made his preparations. The Spartan king took command of an army over 16,000 strong when he landed at Ephesus in 395 BCE, including 5,000 mercenaries that had been fighting in the Persian Empire for the better part of six years. He immediately began making very public commands for the Greek cities to send more reinforcements south to finally stage that invasion of Caria, prompting Tissaphernes to take the Persian army, itself 25,000 strong according to Diodorus, back to the Meander. Normally, we don't trust ancient sources for Persian numbers, but that actually seems super plausible. Quite frankly, Agesilaus played the satrap like a fiddle. With the full force of the Persian army in the south, the Spartans went north, sweeping through western Lydia, taking any Greek city that had remained loyal, defeating local garrisons, be they imperial recruits or local Greeks, and plundering every town and village they could find. Unlike previous Greek raiders we've seen recently, Agesilus was a savvier politician. He forbade burning fields and destruction of crops in captured territory, He liberated children, captured or sold into slavery, and placed them with caretakers, and left elderly captives with the garrisons he installed along the way. The goal was not simple mercenary plunder, but to take and hold territory, and to do that, he had to endear the inhabitants of Ionia to Spartan rule. Much like raiding the mansions of the Aeolian governors, this light-handed approach was more than sufficient. The army became self-funded. The Spartan government had guaranteed funds for six months, and Agesilus stored up enough loot from the captured estates to fund his campaign into the next year and inform his friends back in Sparta which commodities were about to flood the markets of Greece. This allowed investors in the Spartan nobility to do some insider trading and grow rich off the spoils of war. Agesilus's army only saw significant resistance when they neared Dascaleum in Phrygia. Pharnabazus left most of his army in Tissaphernes's command and returned home to govern his province. So he rode out with what cavalry force he could and attacked the Greeks in the plains outside his capital. They only had a small cavalry force of their own, and were forced to retreat. But unlike previous commanders and mercenaries, Aegesilus had all of Sparta's resources at his disposal. He spent that winter recruiting and training his own cavalry. While in Phrygia, a Persian noble named Spithridates switched sides and went over to the Greek army with his family and troops. Plutarch doesn't explain why that happened, but in all likelihood he was a former Cyrus Partisan. Despite his best efforts to make a formal marriage arrangement in the Spartan High Command for his daughter, nothing panned out for Spithridates officially. But informally, Agesilus started a relationship with Spithridates' son. Unless lest you think this is another one of those kind of implied homosexual relationships in ancient history, Plutarch includes a long paragraph about how much a misses this guy's kissing. At sea, Sparta had less luck. They mobilized their forces upon hearing news that the Persian fleet was gathering in Phoenicia. Lacking anybody with true naval experience to command this fleet, the Persians were forced to outsource. But they had an experienced admiral close at hand. Last seen fleeing from the Battle of Igospotomi in episode 73, Conon of Athens was still living in exile on Cyprus as part of the entourage of a Persian vassal king named Evagoras of Salome. With the shoe on the other foot, so to speak, Conan was only too happy to take command of the Persian fleet and seek vengeance against Sparta. The mission to recruit Conan was helmed by none other than Theseus in one of the very last events in his Persica. The surviving summaries and quotes don't explain why Theseus was sent instead of some other negotiator. It's fairly likely that Parasatis had died around this time, and Artaxerxes just saw better uses for Theseus in the West, though Plutarch's timeline disputes this. Theseus had served well as a translator and negotiator with Cyrus the Younger's mercenaries, and probably knew the politics of the Aegean better than anyone else at court, given that he grew up there. He negotiated Conan's employment, but also the resumption of tribute payments from Cypriot Salome. King Evagoras had stopped paying his dues during Cyrus the Younger's revolt, and had not resumed since. He had also started trying to force his neighbors to pay tribute to Salome in addition to Persia. Theseus translated Artaxerxes' opening statements, and then negotiated with the Cypriot king in person, eventually getting Evagoras to stand down and resume his payments. As the Persians thought Caria was the target, Conan sailed there first, securing some of the smaller islands. But he faced a Spartan blockade when he tried to go further north. There was a large Persian force close at hand to augment his marines, some of the army Tissaphernes sent to Caria took to the seas and helped break through the Spartan fleet under the command of an officer named Artaphernes, allowing Conan to reach the island of Rhodes. Interesting to note that this is the first time the name Artaphernes has surfaced in a while, but based on geography, it would seem that this could be a descendant of Darius the Great's brother, who served as satrap of Lydia a century ago. Rhodes was ruled by a Spartan-backed oligarchy, and had been ever since falling early in the Ionian War. But most of the city favored Athenian democracy. Conon's forces besieged the island and took it successfully, cutting off an important artery for trade and supplies between the Spartan army in Asia and the Greek mainland. Theseus departed from the Persian fleet once the island was taken, with orders to continue on to Sparta itself and negotiate on the king's behalf. But back in mainland Greece, war had erupted almost as soon as Agesilus set sail for Ephesus the previous year. Athens was still a shell of its former self, with no walls, barely an army, and all but banned from forming alliances with other cities after the Peloponnesian War. However, they were not the only great city in Greece. Much like Sparta had its Peloponnesian League in the century before defeating Athens, the city of Thebes commanded the Boeotian League, which had supported Xerxes once upon a time, and then backed Sparta in its war with Athens. Now the Thebans were dissatisfied in post-war Greece. They wanted to break Athenian dominance, not replace it with Spartans. But what to do? They couldn't afford to fight Sparta by themselves, and they certainly couldn't make public overtures to form a military alliance and oppose them during peacetime. Instead, they used one of the minor cities in the Boeotian League as a proxy to initiate a border dispute against a minor member of the Peloponnesian League. When Sparta came to their allies' aid, that was all the casus belli Thebes needed to start searching for allies. Athens was the first obvious candidate, as a rival to Sparta with territory immediately south of Boeotia and famously successful in war. The Athenians mustered what little they had, and went north to join Thebes. When I was applying to grad school, In just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately... Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, But many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language Back east, after taking Rhodes, Conan left his fleet in the hands of a subordinate and sailed down to Phoenicia, crossing Syria with a small entourage and then sailing down the Euphrates to Babylon, where he met with Artaxerxes in person. Conan laid out a plan that would allow Artaxerxes to not only expel all mainland influence from Ionia, but extend his personal influence in Greece to a degree that his ancestors only ever dreamed about, all without raising any new armies. All Conan asked for was financial support. Artaxerxes granted it authorizing 10,000 golden Dariks to spend on the project, and giving Conan permission to pick any of the western satraps as his co-commander. Conan chose Pharnabazus and returned to Phrygia, where he explained his plan to the satrap. Emissaries from the Athenian and Pharnabazus fanned out across the Aegean. They went to the islands surrounding mainland Greece, the colonies in the Chalchidiches, the kings of Thessaly, and a number of inland cities in central Greece, making well-placed bribes and promises of Persian support. Everywhere they went, local leaders turned against Sparta and sent their representatives down to Corinth, while Conan himself returned to Athens for the first time in 13 years, with a big box of shiny gold coins set aside to rebuild their defensive walls. On the same trip, Conon induced most of the islands of the Cyclades to join their cause, and recruited the remains of the Athenian fleet to return with him to Anatolia, join the Persian fleet, and fight Sparta together in the next year's campaign. Back in Asia the Spartans regrouped at Ephesus to resume the campaign better equipped to counter Persian horsemen in the field for spring 394. Agesilaus continued to play Tissaphernes like a very predictable puppet. This time, he loudly announced that he would plunge deep into Lydia, raid along the fertile river plains, and attack Sardis itself. The satrap took this as a repeat of the previous year's ruse, and assumed that he would actually commit to the long-awaited Carrion campaign. Instead, Agesilaus planned to repeat the Athenian march on Sardis from the First Ionian Revolt. He did exactly what he promised. The Greek army moved swiftly through the open plains of western Lydia for three days, plundering all the while before Tissaphernes' cavalry were able to catch up. They tore through scattered raiding parties in the countryside with ease, outnumbering them significantly and having the advantage of mounted mobility. But when the Persian horsemen tried to attack Agesilus' camp at the foot of Mount Sipolis, they had less luck. The Spartan army attacked before the Persian infantry were even in formation. The newly minted Greek cavalry initially struggled against their Persian counterparts, but Greek peltasts led the charge behind them, dispersing the Persian infantry with missile fire and giving the hoplites time to charge up without the usual Persian blanket of arrows over the battlefield. With Xenophon and the mercenaries as the core of this Greek charge, they smashed through the remaining Persian infantry just as they had at Kunaxa, forcing Tissaphernes' men to retreat. By then, it was too late. The Greek Peltasts had proceeded past the Persian lines and seized Tissaphernes' camp as soon as they had finished playing their role in the charge. The Greeks claimed personal belongings, tents, family members, servants, and slaves as plunder. New Spartan officers actually arrived just after defeating this Persian army. They came with news that Agesilaus had officially received command of both the navy and the army, the first Spartan to ever hold both positions simultaneously. He delegated control of the fleet to his brother-in-law, Pesander, and continued on to Sardis in person. Paysander was a controversial choice. It was obvious nepotism, and many in the Spartan high command feared that this young brother-in-law was too inexperienced. They were proved correct almost immediately. To deal with rising tensions in Greece and the need to supply their forces in Anatolia, the Spartan government reached out to Pharaoh Neferud down in Egypt. More than happy to support anything that would keep the Persians out of his territory, and sitting on the abundant grain stockpiles of the Nile, Neferud entered into an alliance with the Greek hegemony. From their base in Rhodes, Conon the Athenian and Pharnabazus led the Persian fleet, intercepting grain shipments to cut off Agesilus' supplies and force him to reconsider his policy of not plundering captured cities. If they could turn the Ionians against him, they could turn them back towards Persia. When Paysander sailed out to face the Persian fleet off the coast of Cnidus, the Greek island in Caria, it was a disaster. Fifty Spartan triremes were destroyed, and many more sailors were killed and wounded, including Paysander himself. Sparta had to withdraw from the coast entirely and sail north to monitor the northern Aegean. Conon followed them and seized control of the Hellespont and the Black Sea trade route. Along the way, he laid waste to all of Sparta's recent gains, capturing many key ports and islands in the Aegean, spurring more to give up on the Spartan cause and expel garrisons of their own accord. Most distressingly for Sparta. This included the likes of Ephesus, Lampascus, and Byzantium, key ports for bringing more troops and supplies into the war. Back on land, Sardis was unprepared for a siege. The Greeks had their run of the markets outside the walls, and they took everything that wasn't nailed down, but they weren't able to get through the gates. That said... They didn't really need to. The goal was not to burn Sardis as the Athenians had done, but to weaken and demoralize the satrapy, to persuade the Persians to give up the fight. Rather than setting in for a siege, the Spartans returned to Ephesus just a few weeks before it was taken by Conon. There, Agesilaus had the Persian cavalrymen stripped naked and sold in the slave market where they were mocked for the paleness of their skin. Xenophon boasted that this was because the Persians are weaklings who spent all their time traveling in carriages, a claim which is further exaggerated by Plutarch in his own biography of Agesilus. But, uh, no. The Persian cavalry were the warriors who had been holding the Greeks at bay and giving Xenophon's mercenaries trouble for more than half a decade. They just wore head-to-toe clothing, felt hoods or caps over long-sleeved tunics and full-length trousers with closed-toed shoes, as opposed to the Greeks fighting in short-sleeved skirts and sandals. You gotta imagine an ancient Achaemenid cavalryman had some pretty solid tan lines. In Sardis, things were not great for Tissaphernes. He had left his generals to command the armies in the field, and was left sitting inside the city as the Greeks plundered his markets. Looking out at their smoldering villages and shattered stalls, his subjects kind of rightly blamed him for their strife, as did King Artaxerxes. Tissaphernes had briefly endeared himself to the new king, but by now Artaxerxes was starting to understand why his brother was sent to Lydia as Carinos in the first place. Time and time again, Tissaphernes had proven himself incompetent in the face of Greek incursions, be they Spartan or Athenian. This was the last straw especially with the influence of Parasadus. She may have been exiled in Babylon, but the queen mother still had her friends at court. And she hated the satrap of Lydia to the bone for his role in Cyrus's death and his relationship to Teratukmes, who murdered her daughter. Tissaphernes was still a known risk. He controlled the war zone, a royal army, Negotiations with Sparta, and had a proven reputation of rebelling or disobeying orders from his superiors if he saw personal gain. So, soon after the Battle of Sardis, Tissaphernes received an invitation to a banquet in the city of Colossae, ruled over by Ariaios, the one-time supporter of Cyrus. Thinking this was a fairly routine invitation from a vassal to entertain his superior, Tissaphernes went only to find no party, only Ariaios and Tithrostes, a new Persian noble on the scene. Tithrostes had been appointed satrap of Lydia and had orders to execute Tissaphernes. After nearly three decades in royal service in Anatolia, Tissaphernes was detained, decapitated, and his head was sent back to Artaxerxes. Tithrostes then sent an envoy to Sparta. As Tissaphernes had done, Tithrostes demanded that they leave Ionia at once and restore things as agreed on at the end of the Peloponnesian War. Naturally, Agesilaus said no. But he told Tithrostes that he would leave Lydia for the time being and take the war north to Pharnabazus' territory. A gift for the man who finally got rid of Tissaphernes. When they reached Phrygia, they crossed Pharnabazus' lands heading northeast toward Paphlagonia. The local ruler, Corolas, was still in open rebellion stemming from his support for Cyrus the Younger. Corolas happily allied himself with Sparta, a pact solidified by marrying the daughter of the Persian turncoat, Spithridates. Unfortunately, this did not last long. Spithridates took command of the Paphlagonian cavalry, and when his Spartan co-commander demanded they turn their plunder over to Agesilus's war treasury one too many times, Spithridates took the Papligodians, rode to Sardis, and begged forgiveness, pledging his service to Tithraustes. It was at this point that Agesilaus mourned the loss of Spithridates' son and his wonderful kisses. As autumn turned to winter, and the campaign season drew to a close, Pharnabazus offered one last parley with Agesilaus operating through a mutual associate in the Greek city of Kizikos. Agesilus agreed to a meeting in person, but it was carefully choreographed to judge the satrap. Ornate Persian rugs were brought out into a field outside the city walls and laid out on the ground to host the meeting with all of the cushions and finery befitting one of the highest-ranking Persian nobles in the empire. But the Spartan took a seat in the grass, lounging against a tree. Fortunately for Pharnabazus, the satrap of Phrygia was more astute than most of his colleagues. He bypassed the rugs and cushions to sit next to Agesilas in the grass. It was simultaneously an overture to Spartan sensibilities and a show of force that he was not the soft old man Sparta expected. The satrap accused the Spartans of betraying Persia politically and Pharnabazus himself on a personal level. They had been close allies in the war against Athens not that long ago. Agesilus responded to say that their alliance was only supported by Cyrus in the end, and that Artaxerxes II's ascension to kingship had broken the truce. However, he also offered to support Pharnabazus should he choose to rebel. They had no conflict with him or the people of Hellespontine Phrygia in particular, just the empire more broadly. Pharnabazus was a loyalist through and through, from a long line of leal satraps that had always enjoyed royal favor. He told Agesilaus that the only way he would ever rebel was would be if Artaxerxes replaced him arbitrarily. Were that to happen, he promised to take Sparta up on the offer. Over the course of the meeting, the king befriended both Barnabasus and some of his entourage, parting ways not as bitter foes like Tissaphernes, but as respectable adversaries divided by politics. But even as this meeting took place, events were unfolding worlds away that would change the course of the war. Back in Greece, Persian support escalated things. Sparta preferred to keep one king at home when the other was in the field, but with a guestless on another continent pillaging Phrygia, Pausanias had to be sent in. But he arrived too late. Lysander and the initial Spartan army sent to fight Thebes were already defeated, and Lysander wanted to put Pausanias on trial for treason. The accusation was that the king was deliberately slow in hopes of eliminating Lysander's influence, getting Spartan men killed. With the second trial for treason in as many years hanging over him, Pausanias opted to flee off into exile on the island of Tegia. That brought his 14-year-old son to the Aegean throne, too young to actually fulfill political duties as the war continued to escalate. With Sparta's position clearly not as strong as they once believed, other cities joined the war. Argos, Sparta's perpetual rival in the Peloponnese, was no surprise. But Corinth was another matter. One of the Spartans' most steadfast allies for centuries, the Corinthians rankled under Spartan imperialism in recent decades and decided that it was high time to knock them down a peg. They offered their city on the Isthmus as the base of operations for the newly formed alliance of Argos, Athens, and Thebes. So began the Corinthian War, with the city that traditionally defended the whole of the Peloponnese from outside invasion now siding with outside invaders. With a growing anti-Spartan alliance and only a boy king at home, Agesilus was forced to abandon his efforts in Anatolia. He gathered up all of his forces on board the battered Spartan fleet and crossed from Sestos to Abydos, the only cities still loyal to Sparta on the Hellespont. The fleet didn't have room for the full army to travel at once, and there were now enemies of Sparta dotting the Thracian coast. So in a twist of history, the Spartan army marched north and west from Sestos, following the route taken by Xerxes 86 years earlier in late autumn of 394. Among them were the remaining mercenaries from Cyrus the Younger's army, headed home at long last, barely more than a third of the number who set out in the first place. Many, including Xenophon, soon discovered they were exiled from their homelands for their service to Sparta. Much later in life, the Spartan king would muse that he was driven out of Asia by ten thousand archers, referring to the bow wielding king emblazoned on a Caymanid coinage. But that is where I will leave things for today. Next time we continue this war against Sparta, and the Persians will head west for the first time since the days of Xerxes. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon, also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to 20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia.